I see the world being colonized by perverse Christianity that's unsustainable in every way. It's leading to global conflicts. It might lead to the next world war. If what's killing us is perverse Christianity, then a reform within Christianity itself, a recovery of authentic Christianity, might be the only way. You said it's a it's a sermon for the new agers, and I was wondering about the Christ nature and in what way it would be different, for example, from the idea of the cosmic Christ that has been popularized. You mean popularized by Richard Rohr? Yeah, I don't think Richard Rohr has. Uh, I don't. I don't differ at all from Rohr because Rohr's sources are mine. So Rohr's cosmic Christ comes from. Paul's letter to the Colossians and letter to the Ephesians and from the prologue to the Gospel of John. So what Rohr is doing is, is exactly what should be done. He's, he's reminding the New Age that they, what they are looking for, you know, in the so-called East, in the North and the South, in shamanism, whatever, is actually at the center of the Western contemplative tradition. And you could say, well, big deal. Uh, but it might matter. It might matter because it might matter. We, we might we might not be as free to choose our religions as we think. You know, as an archetypal psychologist of some kind, I'm sure you can recognize the point that you know we don't choose our symbols. Our symbols choose us, and they choose us uh, collectively. That is, we're born into a symbolic structure. And my impression is is that we that that a Westerner really for the most part, can only go so deeply down an Asian path before he or she hits a wall. And that wall is their own, the, the matter of their own symbolic origin. They need, to, they, need to, they need to come to terms with it. They need to recognize it, even if they haven't been churched, because the, the religious symbolism suffuses everything. It suffuses our political structures, our educational structures, even in the secular age. That was the point of secular Christ, uh, at least initially. Mm. So, yeah, my, my impression is that if, if we really want to grow spiritually, mm. as, as genuine followers of the New Age do, we need, to, we need to take very seriously our mother tongue, so to speak, the this, this symbolic home in which we were raised. So I, I, I think this is what Roar is doing. He is. He's trying to bring the New Age back to its mother tongue. Now, not everybody has, you know, this is a pluralistic world, multicultural world, where we, we can't just presume that every New Ager has, you know, Western Christendom as their mother tongue. And I don't. Uh, so yeah, the same thing could be said for a Hindu, for Muslims. For a Native American community, a specific demographic to which I happen to belong, which is what we could call of European descent, the Westerners and their mother tongue, which is Christian. I very much like the concept of Christ's nature and how you tie something together here. 
I think you're speaking of Christ in a way that makes him more accessible. And you're also not leaving out the the question of the historical Christ. Obviously, you, you're keeping that link and you say we all have to struggle with the historical Jesus in relationship to, to Christ. But, but, but why does our secular age, time, this historical moment need this uh, Christ nature? Or is this not another just a rendering for the new age, a new sort of thing to play with? Well, I think every person has to ask that, themselves that question. I, I can only answer it for myself. And for me, it's obvious that everyone everywhere needs to know the Christ. And I say that knowing that a Buddhist monk in Kyoto is committed to saying something parallel with regard to Buddha nature. So it's part of that commitment. So I, 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 don't, I don't see any other alternative for the world because I don't entertain any other alternative at all. I, I don't see other, any other way. So I see the world through that lens and everything I see confirms it. I, I'm not saying that this can't be rejected. Somebody couldn't say, you know, well, I don't need your Christ and I don't need your path and I don't need religion. I mean, all, all of this is, is really a, a matter of freedom. It's not a, it's not a matter of logic. I'm not, not interested in demonstrating the truth of the path through some kind of rational means. This is, it's, it's about decision and orientation. So I see the world then through this decision, which I have made and which I cannot unmake. And what I see is a world that is in the grips of a perversion of Christianity, which is the consumer world, the world of the unholy matrimony of technology and consumerism, which has succeeded in colonizing the earth where 2000 years of Christian missionary, missionary activity could not, you know, the Christian missionaries went to India, I think, at, possibly as early as the time of the apostles. There's a legend that the apostle Thomas himself went to India. In any case, there's been Christian missionary activity in India for 2,000 years. And the effect has been negligible. The proportion of Indians who were converted to Christianity in those 2,000 years is so small as to be insignificant. But it only took us less than a century to convert all of India to consumerism. And consumerism did not originate in Vedanta. It originated in European secular Christianity. So I see the world being colonized by perverse Christianity that's, that is in the, unsustainable in every way. It's going to lead to, it's leading to global conflicts. It might lead to the next world war, which will no doubt be nuclear. And it's certainly leading to the destruction of the environment. So everywhere. So I, I see this as a, a case of, of where the danger grows, there grows the saving power also, as Hölderlin says in the famous poem, or in a Paracelsian sense, as, that the poison is also the root of the medicine. And the, the recovery of contemplative Christianity in this context suddenly becomes of immense political significance. If it, if it if it's if if what's killing us is perverse Christianity, then a reform 
within Christianity itself, a recovery of authentic Christianity might be the only way. I, I, in fact, I do believe it is the only way. But as I said, I, I speak as a human being and not as someone who understands how all the other paths lead in one way or another to the truth. The image I have when I think of Buddha nature and, and Christ nature, starting with Buddha, I'm seeing all these houses, the people meditating, uh, the Buddha is there, or, you know, he's such a peaceful figure. And then we have Christ on the cross, hanging, suffering on a cross. And I'm, 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 you touched upon it, but I'm, I'm still wondering about the cross. And, and the question of the cross within this uh, rendering or within this idea that you present of thinking of, of Christ's nature, is there something to say about the cross? Well, you could, you, you could certainly say that we have, at least symbolically, two opposed images. And Jung got onto, he caught onto this too. When he, he made claims such as the, the East is, or Asia is, has a introverted persona and an repressed extroversion and the reverse is the case in the West, that we are, we have a repressed introversion. So we're kind of opposites of opposite structures. Activism and contemplation, hist you know, historicity and timelessness. And that's the work of comparative religion. We can talk that way. I mean, I'm, I'm interested. I'm also interested in comparative studies, but it wasn't really what I was trying to get at. For me, you know, the the image of the seated Buddha belongs as, as essentially to the Buddhist traditions as the image of the crucified Christ. Christ belongs to the Christian traditions. So it's 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 an essential piece of it, and it, it cannot be taken from it. And it also the the Buddha, the seated Buddha, also suggests, you know, the roots of Buddhism in, in Vedanta, in Hinduism, in the yoga tradition. And, and maybe there is something to what Jung says, you know, it also is a manifestation of the high value placed on introspection and introversion, at least in traditional, traditional religious Asian cultures. I'm not sure that that value is still in place. Similarly, with the cross, we see something different. We see, of course, violence and death. The pro we also see the problem of evil which I think is a problem for everyone. Mm. The problem of evil is also at the center of, of Buddhism. You know, the, the first of the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha is that all life is suffering. In other words, the first of the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha is that there is such a thing as evil, but the, the root of evil is understood quite differently. So we, in the Christian tradition, the Christian symbolic, the problem of evil is, so to speak, in your face. It's not a proposition. It's, 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 a, it's a conflict without which the Christ makes no sense. People who do not acknowledge the reality of evil have no need of the Christ. There's no way of preaching the gospel to someone who thinks evil doesn't exist, who thinks that it's all good thinks that evil is just a mistake in judgment or just a delusion. So you have that there. You have this, this kind of confrontation with the problem of evil. You also have history, too, in an important sense. You know, the seated Buddha is a, is a kind of timeless image. Of course, there was, perhaps was, a, a historical figure, Siddhartha Gautama. And some years ago, I did some research on, on the historicity of the Buddha. And you might know that the Theravadan tradition is quite committed to the historical Buddha and understand that the, the experience of enlightenment, 
that the Buddha enjoyed is not, not exactly a singularity, but something that is very rare, that has occurred, you know, maybe occurs once in an age. And so the Buddha is the enlightened one for our age, and now we aspire to be like him, but most of us will fall short. In the Mahayana tradition, uh, the Buddhas are everywhere and enlightenment is everywhere. So it's a striking difference there. But e even in Theravada, the historicity of the Buddha is far less significant than his teaching. Whereas in Christianity, the teaching of Jesus is far less significant than his historical existence. As Kierkegaard said, the teacher is the teaching. And you see that, I think, in the symbol of the cross, because the symbol of the cross draws us to history. If you were to explain to a child what the crucifix is, you'd say, well, 2,000 years ago, in a place which is now Israel, a man was executed in a style that Romans used to execute criminals. You know, when you look at a seated Buddha, you don't necessarily go, well, 2,500 years ago, a man sat beneath the body tree and had an enlightenment experience. You might, but you see my point. The symbolic doesn't draw us into history quite the same way because the tradition itself is not committed to history in the same way that Christianity is. So I, I see the, the symbol as, of the cross as being, as I said, uh, kind of inextricably connected to the fundamental claims of Christianity. The essence of Christianity cannot be extracted from it. Just a little point on the, the problem of evil. You know, one of the fallacies that post-Christians fall into is wanting to remain culturally Christian, but getting rid of all that theology, all that miracle and resurrection stuff. And usually the people who espouse this doctrine of kind of moral Christianity as a moral teaching, they're not people who've done very much reading in this, because if they did, they would realize that it's completely untenable. They're usually people who have been raised in churches who have rejected their upbringing, but they're still attached to Christianity. And they think of Christianity as, as kind of a perfect moral teaching, and that Christ was a moral teacher who was sort of distorted by his followers into something special, made into a Messiah, a Christ figure, a redeemer of the world. But what was really, what was really important about him was that he taught the golden rule. Well, if you look at the, the text, you'll see that indeed Christ teaches the golden rule, and it's the, most, it's the least important part of the gospel. The golden rule, which is pretty much taught everywhere, found everywhere in the world, and which Kant himself says is a rational, it's a, a rational proposition. It's an a priori proposition. He might or might not be right about that, but the point is that there's nothing particularly mysterious about the idea that we should treat others as we would have ourselves treated. And this was, and if this is all Christ said, I don't know that we would have remembered him. And certainly, if that was all he did and, and preached, we certainly wouldn't have crucified him. Why would you crucify someone for preaching the golden rules? You know, so what, what, what exactly is the crime there? If you look more carefully, you see a Christ whose primary activity is to announce himself in a way that, as C.S. Lewis says, only a madman would. You know, to say that I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the end of an age. And now everything changes. I am the moment of inbreaking. I am the moment of reckoning. God has now gathered together all of the wild ends of creation. He let things run havoc for a while for his own mysterious purposes, but now he's gathering it all back together and a great change is occurring. And blessed is he who is not offended at me. So Jesus announces himself as the Christ 
in so many different ways that one could say that the whole point of the gospel is the announcement of Jesus as the Christ, as God among us. And certainly that's the only Christ Paul knows. Paul, is, as we know, is a contemporary of Jesus's, but he never met him. He never met him. He was converted after the fact, after the death and resurrection through an encounter with the resurrected Christ, the famous encounter on the road to Damascus. And after that, he consulted with the apostles, with those who knew Jesus in person in order to sort of make sure that his idea of things squared with theirs enough that he could collaborate in their project, which there were some disputes and some struggles, and they sort of decided that Paul was the one for the Greeks, for the Gentiles, and Peter and James and the other apostles who knew Jesus would, would stay with the Jews. But the point is that even after this sort of education in the earthly life of Jesus, Paul shows extremely little interest in anything about this earthly life of Jesus. When Paul speaks about Christ, he speaks about what we've called Christ nature and the crucifixion resurrection, the singularity of this event. But who, who Christ's parents were, how he was born, whether there was an angelic choir singing Hosanna when he appeared, whether he was born and all the fun, all the interesting things he did before he was 30, none of this interests him in any way. He's not even particularly interested in the preaching of Jesus. You know, it's striking that in the letters of Paul, there's no quotations of the preaching of Jesus. Not one. And we can't say that, oh, he just didn't know about it. We, we know that the preaching of Jesus was, was being orally transmitted in the communities that Paul was preaching to. So he knows about the, the, te the moral teachings of Jesus. He, he just finds this to be beside the point. You know, the point is that the Logos has penetrated time, you know, like a meteor. And it's the, the point of this event is not so that we can get our moral rules straightened out. On the contrary, you know, the, the point of the event is to change everything. And now everything is changed. And you who have, recon who have recognized the event you are now a new creation. You've become someone new. In this life. Certainly in this life. It's all about this life. Maybe this is leading us somewhere else, but how could one connect the concept like Christ nature also to the, uh, to the concept of imitatio Christi? Or how would that relate? Well, that's an interesting question. Imitatio Christi. I've thought a bit about this. Imitatio Christi imitation of Christ. It certainly has biblical credentials. It's not something that was imposed on the tradition, but it, it, is, it is a tradition that really took root in medieval Christendom. It's a medieval practice primarily. If you look at Paul, what Paul is advising of his converts, it's not imitation. It's rather identification. You know, you don't imitate that which you are identical with. Paul says, you know, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. There's Christian non-duality. I am not Christ, and yet I am Christ. And there is, there is no avoiding the paradox in that. But now I live out of my Christ nature. I live out of my Christ nature, and the other part of me, the sinful self, 
sort of dragged along kicking and screaming and is of no real significance because it has no power over the Christ nature. Christ nature has defeated it once and for all. So what Paul advises is it's not that people should imitate the Christ, but that they should realize, and this is where the parallel with Buddhism, with Mahayana is so strong, they should realize that they are already the Christ. And they are so not because of anything that they have done, but because of what he has done. So Christ has now taken them captive. Paul loves this fear of slavery, and we should probably talk a little bit about it. But you who were once slave to sin are now slaves to Christ. Nobody gets out, nobody is free of slavery in Paul, which is why he has different attitudes to the institution of slavery than we do. We're all, we all end up being enslaved. But the enslavement to Christ frees us. It's an enslavement that makes us free. And that we now belong to Christ as, as a slave belongs to his master, whereas previously we belonged to sin. And we need to live out of obedience to that. That's not imitation. You imitate something which you aren't.